things I've been thinking about since my vibrator has been broken and I've had to go the old manual route. Masturbation is good and fun. Yes, masturbation is good and fun. But this is like, it's a PSA both for masturbation and for sexually stimulating your partner if they have a vagina, okay? Okay. And you back me up if, if you think I'm right or tell me if you think I'm wrong. All right. I feel like oftentimes people zero in on the head of the clitoris because they're like, that's where it's exposed. And that's the thing that's like at the peak of your labia minora, right? Yeah. But the clit is underneath your skin also and runs up like in the direction of your belly button. You can confirm this, right? Yeah, I can confirm that. I don't know about belly button. I didn't know that, but I understand. Well, not, no, 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 not all the way towards your belly button. I'm just saying that it runs like, like the head of the clitoris is the most, and you're going to hate this, most southern part of the clitoris. <laughs> and then the clitoris, there's like a bundle of like nerves yes, or yes, whatever yes. it is running upward. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think a lot of people know this. So if you have a vagina or you're having sex with somebody who has a vagina, if you run your fingers up from the head of the clitoris, you can feel it underneath the skin. And it's that sort of thing where it's like a tendon almost where it doesn't feel like it's attached to the skin on top of it. Well, wait, wait, you're feeling it from outside, right? Yes. How are you going to feel it from inside? I don't know, but yeah, I feel it. Yeah, it feels like a Become the bone. (laughs) Become the pubic bone. I'm feeling it right now, everyone. So that's where the clitoris is. So people tend to focus in on the head, I think, because it's the exposed part. And so it's supposed to be more sensitive. But if you're trying to stimulate either yourself or somebody with a vagina, you can use the whole ridge of the thing. Ugh, I have so much to say. (laughs) All right, the second part of the PSA. One... Please, if you're fingering somebody with a clitoris, use more than one finger, okay? Use at least two fingers, and three is totally acceptable. Who fingers with one finger? A lot of people finger with one finger. Yeah, so if you're a a person with a penis, imagine if somebody were to give you a hand job with a single finger. (laughs) Wouldn't really be that great, okay? So keep that in mind when you're fingering somebody with a vagina. And then the the second part of the, like, masturbation slash stimulation tip is that for me personally, even if I'm wet, if somebody runs their hand along, like, the outside of my clit like it starts to feel painful quickly especially if they're moving quickly because you're getting a lot of friction between their fingers and your skin so my advice and this is where I'm looking for you to either confirm or deny is instead to press harder and then move your hand and then that way the friction actually ends up being between the skin itself and the clitoris and so you don't get that like raw feeling and you can apply more pressure I mean, yeah, you shouldn't ever be touching the actual head of the clip because that, like, for me, that hurts. Yeah, it hurts for me, too. You you can touch your tongue to it. But don't rub, don't rub your calloused man finger, your single calloused man finger against the head of somebody's clit for, like, more than one little thing. Or woman finger. Or woman but finger. I, f- I feel like it's potentially like it's reasonable to assume that women know women that. might like know yeah. b- that better. But Maybe. but to be honest, like I feel like I hadn't really understood the technique of masturbating without a vibrator until pretty recently. So it's possible if you've always masturbated with a vibrator. It's like masturbating with a vibrator is like a it's not a fine technique, you know, because the whole thing's vibrating. You just like put it down there and like you have an orgasm. But you can you should do it with your hand a little bit, even though it's much worse, just so that you understand like the physicality of it. First of all, as a person who has spent many, 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 many years <laughs> masturbating, masturbating with her hand. Yeah, I completely agree with you. But also, I do think that you just like once you get a vibrator, you get like vibrator privilege and you like forget that a lot of people don't have vibrators, especially if they're like little, like, you know, when did, whenever you started masturbating, 
yeah, as a teenager, I wasn't gonna be like, Mom, I buy a vibrator or like whatever. She would freak out. And, and also like I, I mean, or I could have gotten it myself, but I didn't even get one until I'm 26 years old and I just got one this year. Or even if people do have them, it's useful to touch yourself sometimes to figure out like what feels good without like a piece of silicon vibrating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also just to like figure out what things feel like. I've had a bad fingering in my life before, especially what what I do, basically, this is my go-to move, is like a guy will be going for, or a, a girl, but mostly guys in my, in my experience, will be going for the clit and will, yeah, will like focus in on that like tip part that actually, especially after you've come, like basically can't be touched. Yeah. Like it's too sensitive. <laughs> and I will just take their little hand and move it up and put it where it should be that's usually what i do and sometimes i like help them a little bit like by putting my hand on top of their hand and kind of just like joining them for a while so that they get the idea and then i'm like okay you go yourself now <laughs> <laughs> you continue this is the meat of the podcast <laughs> have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror <laughs> yeah <laughs> This shit feel like I won't ever make it home Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road Fucked on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone This is She's in Russia. I'm Lily. I'm in St. Petersburg. And I'm Smith, and I'm in Brooklyn. Perfetto. Perfetto. Bella. <laughs> Nutella. I'm losing all my Italian. My Italian's going down the drain. Okay, anyway, so the topic is basically this conception of the politicized mother figure in Russia. And the way we're going to present it is by doing kind of like a brief overview of the official conception of motherhood during the Soviet Union. Then we're going to tell the story of three very tragic events, all of which happened under Putin. And we're going to talk specifically about the role of mothers. And it's not only mothers, but like, I think it's kind of more women in general as they relate. Yeah, but specifically family women. So like mothers and wives for the most part. And wives who have children or who are also mothers. Yeah, we're going to try to sort of relate this social conception of motherhood with these specific examples from history of like how mothers participated. How would you say that participated politically or like? I would say like we want to try to connect the tradition of motherhood and the conception of motherhood in the Soviet Union with like mother based political engagement today or like within the past, you know, two decades, essentially. And by mother-based political engagement, what we mean is like women engaging in some sort of political movement, specifically as mothers. Okay, so to start out, we want to give an overview of the, like the official state conception of motherhood in the Soviet Union. I just wanted to start out by saying that that conception changed over time, clearly, um, over the course of the Soviet Union, but it's basically something that I see as being divided into like two main parts. There's like the early Soviet years, like the 20s and 30s, 
again, we're talking about the official state conception. So, like, what is being propagated to people from above rather than, like, what people are necessarily actually doing. That, in the 20s and 30s, was pretty dynamic and shifted a lot, like, but started out from being, like, we need to unburden women from childcare and, like, from the burden of motherhood and the, the, like, woman worker should be relieved of that and the state should take on a lot of care, basically, responsibility. There's that and then there's a post-war also conception. It's not exactly a shift. It's just, like, you get this, like, symbolic motherland layer added from the war. Okay, so at least in the 20s and 30s, like, what's being negotiated is this relationship between mother child and state basically so like the father is kind of like pushed to the periphery the father figure it's like he's not exactly needed because the mother worker is supposed to reproduce first of all she's still supposed to work be a laborer like the ideal communist right so a lot of the Soviet union rhetoric is about building this like soviet human then, yeah, to unburden her, it's the state's responsibility to provide, like, child care and what else? <laughs> health care? Health care, yeah. Did that also include, like, domestic things like sewing and doing the laundry and cooking? No, not necessarily. Maybe in the beginning. So so the shift between the 20s and 30s is that the 20s, like, this, like, super idealistic early, early Soviet years, in terms of the relationship to the mother, um, the ideal was completely socialized childcare, like entirely kids would be like raised communally in like kid camps or whatever mm. and that just didn't work out there was a lot of like infant mortality because of just like logistical issues with like breastfeeding and mm. health issues with that sounds bleak yeah they recruited like homeless people or like something homeless women to like breastfeed in any case like obviously when like a huge experiment like that starts it's not like clear why exactly it went wrong it probably went wrong in a lot of ways so just sort of for practical reasons, things shifted in the 30s towards like childcare being partially private, like in your own home and the responsibility of a, of a mother and partially state. So again, like providing nurseries and, you know, before school age, these like places for, for your children to be while you're at work, while you're at work. Yeah. The other thing about this state propagated conception is that obviously they need a way to describe all of this and one of the ways was there's like a journal called motherhood that basically covered like everything like health care to like social questions like more sort of like academic questions to like really practical things like the overall relationship to keep in mind during these years even with the shift to a sort of like private slash state childcare mentality is that still the overall thing is that parents even the mother are kind of like mistrusted to raise kids like kids should be raised to be like ideal communist beings meaning that ideally they'd be raised like with special educators and stuff not just like some random parents not just any schmuck that got pregnant yeah but then you have all these other things like the relationship to abortion like abortion was always like regulated by the state in some way but in the 20s it was totally like legal and a lot of people were getting abortions because that was like their main form of birth control yeah i wonder what the forefront of birth control was at that point like what was american birth control like i mean people were wearing condoms lamb skin <laughs> that's like the only thing we know yeah. <laughs> they were using lambskin condoms i believe <laughs> our favorite fact 
Yeah. In the 20s, there was even like this, you know, we're all equal and we are just going to be people who, again, as I said, like the state will take care of babies. We're not going to be burdened by this like bourgeois family structure where we like, we're a couple and we live at home and we fight and shit gets bad and then the kids get psychologically fucked up from that, which is like what we just continue to do. I mean, but because the communal thing, like they're like, oh, well, the babies didn't even get to the point to be psychologically fucked up. They just like died when they were eight months old because some homeless lady wasn't producing enough milk <laughs> but if they i mean but like you could try i mean I'm not i know I'm not you always go back to this, this as if like socialized child raising is practical or even necessarily a good thing it's not necessarily practical but it's definitely more like mortality rate would be lower at this point <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's give it a yeah. whirl again <laughs> shall we it's a 21st century <laughs> But yeah, basically the 30s, the overall characteristics of the 30s is that like there started to be more stringent regulation from the government. So abortion was banned entirely, which sucks because then people were doing like home abortions of dying and stuff. All right. So so tell I, I'm curious about this like shift to this like weird idea of the motherland slash the mother and how like the motherland really interrelates with motherhood itself. I don't know exactly how I can articulate it but if there's one sort of like stable thing throughout the Soviet years it's that there's an explicitly discussed conception of reproduction is like holy holy yeah but it's okay so holy comes second first of all it's it's a function like of the state it's like has a purpose right producing more commonness and that's this like state mother child relationship because from that you infer that a woman's body like when we now are like chanting like my body my choice like (laughs) your body your body not your choice your body (laughs) communist state choice (laughs) exactly this is why people get confused when they're all like, Soviet Union was like feminist because it's unburdening women from childcare. It's like, yeah, but your body's like an instrument for making babies. Like your highest value as a woman is to produce as a, babies. As a still. baby like that, oven. that cult of maternity, yeah. So when you're like unburdened from taking care of your kids, still the state has like a direct interest in the health of your, what you do with your body. And like, there was a lot of pressure to have kids young. Like, if you didn't have kids before you were, like, 26, 26 was considered, like, oh, boy. Like, Wait, what's the word for the next level of spinsterdom? Oh, it's, like, barnacle or something. What is it? Hornyback? Thornyback. Thornyback. Is that right? I think so, yeah. Barnacle. barnacle. I love that. Barnacle. <laughs> Did you say barnacle? Yeah, I think so. I feel like thornyback isn't right. Thornback, maybe? Just without the E? Oh, maybe, yeah. So yeah, this like motherhood as a form of responsibility to the state, right? Like your duty, your it's a service or whatever. And with that, you get this like real, like what you said, this holiness, this like enshrinement of motherhood and then extending from that like womanhood. It's like a big honor, you know? Again, it's that like fake feminist thing where people think it's like feminist to like honor women. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, when they're like, women are goddesses. And you're like, Jesus Christ. I just happen to have a vagina that almost always has a yeast infection. (laughs) It's really cool. Thank you. Wait, I just want to say something real quick or maybe just another example of this like cult of motherhood manifested in like some concrete thing is these like awards that were given to women during the Soviet Union. So like the main one was called oh, yeah. Mother Heroine and it was like a literal medal you got. The honorary title Mother Heroine was awarded to mothers bearing and raising 10 or more children. And essentially it came with a medal and like all this honor or whatever, but you also got like subsidies and see, they were entitled to a number 
number of privileges in terms of retirement pension, the payment of public utility charges, and the supply of food and other goods. It was first established in 1944, so in this period right after the war like at the very Mm -hmm. tail end of the war and it has had like several iterations throughout history one thing i do want to say it does do sort of do that thing that i think angela davis is talking about in um woman race and class or whatever the order of those three words are where she's just talking about the need to like recognize that domestic tasks like cleaning and sewing taking care of the kids do have economic value and that that part of the economy is like sort of subsumed under like women's duties that for some reason people don't recognize as having as much value as things that men traditionally do and so in that way it like almost seems like it could be a good thing because the soviet union is like recognizing oh like this is actually providing a great value to the state but it's just that the outcome is still the same which is that you have to do it they are getting rewarded economically yeah they're financially they're getting money for that but it's also based on literally the number of kids they have not just recognizing that even having one kid requires work that could be compensated in an economic sense. Yeah, but I mean, if, we, if we're saying like, okay, yeah, this is like the extreme side of the spectrum where you have like 10 kids and you get a medal, but like if the general like cult of motherhood exists across motherhood, both during the Soviet Union and now, there is like some sort of recognition of value that m- might not exist as strongly or as explicitly in other countries. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely a recognition of value. That's why it gets confusing, yeah. this question of like... Is it feminist or not? Yeah, how feminism yeah. fits into that because people are like, but we love love our mothers when you like are like you're not feminist they're like they're like but we love our women you know what i mean yeah. like uh like we honor our women we we think that they're amazing anyway let me just talk a little bit about this like what happens after the war yeah well first of all just to know in 1955 stalin dies in 1953 generally like that's the when the period of the thaw under Khrushchev starts stringent policies of all sorts start to like lighten up one of which is the ban on abortion is lifted in 1955. Woohoo! Woohoo! A portion. And then by the 1980s, the infrastructure that provides for moms for helping to raise kids, the state infrastructure is at its like peak okay. in terms of like, you know, access to nurseries and child care in terms of maternity leave and whatever the whatever else but what i mentioned this like post-war conception it's not a shift exactly it's just more of like the war world war ii and then the sort of building up of the glory around winning the war which has been a state-led process since the end of the war and has like if anything gotten like heightened recently under putin this conception of motherland i just want to talk about from the war is just like was a very important part of the rhetoric of like going to war and winning the war is like you protecting your motherland specifically even though the word that is used to describe the war is like fatherland basically like fatherland is just as much a word as motherland in russian okay both are used is the context different when one versus the other is used you know yeah like when you go back to your homeland your homeland is your motherland oh okay but when you're fighting, it's your fatherland. Okay, so World War II in Russian is referred to sometimes as World War II, but more often as the Great Fatherland War. Okay. That's just to say that, yeah, I don't know exactly. I'm, I'm not sure the subtleties of like why fatherland is used sometimes. Maybe you're right. Maybe fatherland is more like about sort of like military action. But like the place, the place itself is the motherland. I'm trying to think the word motherland also is interesting because it comes from like not the word mother, but like the word for 
your kin, clan or something. Like the same root of the word for motherland is in the word for parents. It's not the root of the word for mother, but it's translated in English as motherland and it really like has that sense. In Russian, it has that like feminine sense. Yeah, and it's a feminine word versus fatherland. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I was 13, I was working, trying to get my hands on the first tingling. I was lurking, we were flirting, baby boy, mm, can you be my king king? Tick-tock, I've been watching you. Tick-tock, boy, it's time to groove. Uh, waiting for so long, I just want to get you home, baby, don't you want to hear me moan? I don't mean to rush it, you can be my suspect, my cover can be blown. Traveling your timeline, following your guidelines. Time is running out, I don't want to. Do you want to introduce Lena now? Okay, so basically Lena is is my friend Polia's mother, but in addition to being her mother, she's an extremely talented person and she's basically a very accoladed theater producer um, in St. Petersburg and Moscow. One of the things she did was produce the opening and closing ceremonies in Sochi, the Olympics. She also works with basically every major theater in St. Petersburg and several theaters in Moscow as well. Like in some capacity, she has either worked for them and continues to work with them now. So why did we choose to interview her because she's a mom she's a mom (laughs) yeah so basically like we had this idea for this show and we're like we should really talk to a russian mother about what we think and our goal was to ask her like a combination of like more conceptual or for lily specifically to ask her a combination of more conceptual and personal questions and we've selected a few clips from their conversation that we think are nice okay so when i said that there's like a concept of motherhood from soviet history you know what I mean, right? It's not like... I actually don't know what you mean. Because okay. uh, for me, uh, I'm anti-globalist. I'm against every intention of generalizing things. So for me, motherhood is motherhood uh, in a very universal sense of it. cannot be motherhood uh, uh, in Soviet Union or motherhood in uh, uh, capitalist society. There is everything everywhere. The country needed uh, a new huge generation. Not every country, nobody lost uh, as many sons and daughters of the country like the Soviet Union, uh, more than 20 millions. Mm-hmm. And if you plus to this uh, what uh, the number of the victims of Stalin's regime was, uh, it's even bigger uh, number and uh, certainly a special cult of uh, many children and family it did exist nevertheless uh, the absolute majority couldn't afford uh, to have uh, more than one or two but it was cultivated by government by authorities by publicity to have more kids and uh, even a mother who had uh, i think towards eight i don't remember well uh, children, uh, she was already uh, declared a hero yeah, of yeah. the nation. 
some goods which other families couldn't get uh, for free were given to these uh, mm-hmm. families uh, with uh, many children in. Mm-hmm. But for me, motherhood, when we talk about it, it's before all the other things and uh, what is imposed or not imposed by family rules or government or whatever, it's uh, love. Motherhood is, uh, I think, in ancient Rome or today, for me, first of all, this. That's a tearjerker. Have I ever heard one? I think we should call the episode Motherhood is Love. I mean, she resists thinking of her role as a mother in the in the broader concept of the Soviet Union. Yeah. But but she does acknowledge that there was this conception but that the most important part of it is actually like the personal tie you have with your children and not what the state imposes on the image of your relationship with your children. She could have bought into that more in in answering my question, but yeah, I think she just I like how she's just like I don't like to generalize, which is like what we just did for the past 25 minutes. And you really push back against generalizations also, but I do think yeah. that of course, generalizations are useful for talking about certain phenomenon. And the in the phenomenon we're talking about, and I think that you did a good job of being like, well, this at least was the state phenomenon. It doesn't, we don't know like how much it actually impacted an individual's family life or the way that they thought about themselves. And I think that this illustrates that well. Yeah. And I think let, let's maybe play the like, I don't know, some juicy detail clip, like the lines clip. So you were a child during the Soviet Union and then you had children just at the end, just socially and culturally, that's a big shift in, in history. In every society, yes, motherhood is universal, but in every society, there's often a concept brought on from some kind of external source. It could be the government, it could be religion. And the concept is like what it means to be a good mother. As a person who has your experience as being a child and as being a mother, did you notice like what it means for your mother to be a good mother and what it means for you to be a good mother? Were they the same? Or did you feel like, you know, you had a different concept? I remember my childhood, maybe everyone remembers its uh, childhood like uh, in pink colors or very soft and uh, fluffy period, maybe. Very few of us uh, had uh, really tragedies or something uh, difficult in their childhood. I remember my mom uh, was very beautiful, uh, very fashionable. In the shops uh, there was not much choice. That's why mostly mothers in those times, they knew how to sew and how to knit. Mm. And uh, maybe this is a difference because uh, (laughs) our children, they don't know uh, already how to make it in those times. If you didn't know how to sew or knit, meant uh, somebody had to uh, know how to do this near you. Or otherwise you had to uh, be always in clothes which were more or less uh, the same uh, <laughs> from the shop. When finally we got the chance to put ourselves in a queue to buy a car, we had to go outside the city once a month to just confirm our wish to buy a car. At night uh, I was sleeping and that's why my mother was uh, queuing at night to buy books, rare books. In those times appeared Podpisny edition, editorial, mm-hmm. and uh, they started to print very 
beautiful books and some writers were just blocked in those mm-hmm. times and to buy them you had to queue. There were maybe three types of queuing for theater tickets mm-hmm. and it was for Badate, Bolshoi Drama Theater, Patvisne is Dani to buy books and also uh, to buy a car. <laughs> so I was accompanying her. The thing which never could come to my mind right. was my kids because uh, I always uh, had an option. Maybe uh, also we had more options, uh, me like mother, to give my uh, to my children more open horizons to study this or this or this because um, many options by payment appeared and uh, I already uh, could afford it, but not in those times. The way she approached your question was like not actually that conceptual, but she's just like talking about the economic situation being the main difference in the way that she raised her kids versus how her mother Mm -hmm. raised her kids. And not that like, oh, her mother like thought about her relationship with her daughter differently. Like her mother loved her a lot and probably in the same way that she loves her kids. But it was just the logistical things that were different. Yeah, exactly. Like you needed to be like thriftier. You need to be thriftier and like wait in lines with your children. And like you couldn't give your kid everything they wanted because you just didn't have the money for it. Yeah, or those things just weren't available to you, available to people. All right, so we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about these particular political events that happened, slash tragedies. Queen, the bottom looks different from the top, so you must have forgot that I was hot, I was running the block, these niggas thought I would stop, the shot was blocked, they tried to leave me dead in the box, but I forgot to ride, now I'm here, motherfucker, and I'm ready for supper, I'm coming with thunder from under the covers, you better run with your mother, cause I will cut it like bread with the butter, you probably find your brother dead in the summer, don't match the price for sacrifice, that's past the vice, my cousin told me don't pass the mic, had an E, then I trapped the mice, niggas acting like there can't be light, skin too dark, so there can't be light, there can't be light, I can't be white, you can't be white, whatever. Yeah, this last segment, we're going to talk about mother's political reaction to three events slash like kind of ongoing events that have taken place during Putin's presidency. The three are a submarine sinking, a school hostage situation, and the cover up and like ongoing missing Russian soldiers in Ukraine. And Lily's going to introduce, you want to start with Kursk? Yeah. The setting is a small, closed military town on the Barents Sea called Vidyaeva, which has has been a naval base since the 1960s. And it's been a naval base for particularly nuclear um, submarines since the 1970s. The thing that happened was that the entire crew, which was 118 sailors aboard a nuclear-powered cruise missile submarine called the Kursk, were all killed in a series of explosions that were completely accidental, non-military related, and that happened during a like official exercise. This is sort of a controversial moment, but the first explosion occurred because people were like trying to like set up a torpedo, and because of like something that was fucked up with the torpedo casing, there was a, an explosion that 135 seconds later caused a second explosion, which was much stronger, and the second explosion killed everyone on board so there's 118 people on board it killed everyone except for 23 people it like went through all these different chambers and the the 23 remaining sailors were in this like ninth chamber what ensues is this like really horrible 
nine-day, basically, period where all of Russia and the world is, like, waiting to hear about what happened to the people on the submarine. And, like, the information, it's really hard to get information. So, like, at some point, people are told that there are still people alive on board. And one of the biggest tragedies around this situation is that those 23 men who are in the final chamber, they're SOSing for help and are being ignored for some, like, security reason. And basically, foreign, specifically Norwegian and British ships over the course of the first few days is offering assistance to Russia. And Russia, like, denies also for security reasons their assistance. The other important fact is that when this tragedy happens, so on the 12th of August, it's not publicly announced right away. Putin is on vacation on the Black Sea. And one of the biggest things that becomes important later is that he doesn't immediately fly either to Moscow or to this little town to deal with this situation. He stays there. And like he made statements later being like, well, I had the same level of communication, but just like symbolically, that was really rough. So these surviving men, they end up dying by either fire or suffocation because their oxygen supply comes into contact with like oily seawater. There's like a flash fire. The situation is extremely horrible. And for the people on land, the so like the relatives of these sailors, all the sailors are men, and the relatives we're going to talk about, which are mostly women and children, they spend a lot of this period of nine days with almost no information. The accident isn't even announced right away that the ship sunk. Putin finally allows a Norwegian team to come assist. They're able to dock to the sub, go in and confirm that everyone is dead. Why don't you start talking about the media reaction? One of the most talked about and like sort of important reactions in the media was the segment on Channel One, which is like the main federal news channel, by the anchor whose name is Sergei Darenko. He no longer works for Channel One, but this segment came out on September 2nd, 2000, so just after. And he spent the entire like hour-long show that he has devoted entirely to the Kursk tragedy. And specifically, he was extremely, extremely critical of Putin's handling of the situation, the government's handling of the situation in general, and Putin's in particular. For part of it, he goes to that town, Vidayeva, which is like a shitty, shitty little town. And this is where the families of the Kursk sailors live. This is the Kursk home port. And he goes there and he interviews people and like tries to sort of instigate. He asks leading questions and tries to get people to kind of like blame the government for how they handled the situation and why all those sailors weren't rescued faster. And people are very not down with that and like won't criticize. Overall, this like segment he does, which includes the interviews with the families, and he also critiques Putin for Putin's behavior during this meeting with the families. Because Putin comes and meets families, he spends two hours and 40 minutes with the families of the sailors. Basically, the anchor says something along the lines of like, Putin sounds like a schoolboy who's late to class and is like, I'm late because um, the bus broke over here and then like I didn't get to the thing and this happened and that happened. And the anchor, Durenko, says, look, like any teacher would tell you, and this is what we, the people, are telling you, like little schoolboy, I don't care what happened to the bus, just get to class on time. So why don't you talk about what the mother reaction to Korsk was? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, so it's, again, it's wives, not exactly only mothers. A lot of the people 
who were like who remained in the home port after the Kirk sinking and who came to the conference were wives and, and other relatives. Basically, 500 relatives came to the city. A couple of things that this group of women, wives and mothers did when some of them are interviewed, they speak about themselves as like serving. It's like they serve with their husband. One group of women wanted to like film basically like a demand and like asked for help with that, asked journalists for help with that, like filming a demand that like this be investigated or rather not investigated, rather that rescue missions happen faster because it's like this whole period of like waiting and it was horrible. Um, another group of women in in Vidyaeva in this little town would wash the streets, which is it's not the first, it's not like the only example of this happening in, in towns, but they were washing the streets because they were worried that maybe this nuclear-powered torpedo had like leaked, what, uranium particles or something? Yeah, I guess so. Into the city. There was no problem with radiation, but still, that was another action that they were taking. Another like was would ask journalists to drive them to Murmansk, which is like the closest big city, to buy funeral wreaths. The other thing to note is that when people were, were given a chance to speak with Putin, finally when he showed up, like whatever, seven days later, to speak to these women mostly, they like said their piece and they also said their piece to the deputy prime minister. Let, let's talk about the other things before we try to like kind of theorize what is particular or different about these types of political engagements? Okay. So do you want to you talk about the school next? The second tragedy we're going to talk about is a school hostage situation that took place between September 1st and September 3rd, 2004, four years later. The result of which was 334 people died in this hostage situation and 186 children were among them. Where this took place is Beslan, which is a small city in North Ossetia, which is in the North Caucasus, so like southern Russia. Ossetia, is that right? Yeah, we still don't know. <laughs> okay. The hostages were taken by, again, this is like a controversial situation, but Chechen terrorists could be rogue, could be not rogue, like exactly how they got there and why they're there and like who was aware of that is still a matter of contention. But basically it started in September 1st, which as we've mentioned before is like knowledge day in Russia. So there was a bunch of people at the school. It's the first day of school. Everyone's there, all the moms, all the parents, all the whatever. Like they brought all their kids. The babies are there. And it made it so that when, I don't know how it's called, took people hostage, there were 1,100 people in the school building. The terrorists who were taking hostages, they had like a goal, which was basically to like negotiate talks for the war in Chechnya. So it like had, there was a point. Because the war in Chechnya is like the background of this, an ongoing war that like colors a lot of Putin's career. On September 3rd, so there's like a standoff for like three days of this like horrible situation. During the three days, some hostages are released, specifically mothers with infants. So on September 3rd, basically the reason that the 334 people die are because Russian troops end up storming the school. Ostensibly to, obviously, to, like, get the hostages to stop what they're doing. And it's unclear, like, how exactly the people died, right? Like, it's unclear if they were killed by the Russian agents storming the building or if they were killed by the captors. Yeah, I mean, I think most of them were killed, like, in the storming. There was also, like, one of the initiators of the storming was a fire 
started. And one of the theories is that that was from the Russian military. Like, basically, the theory would be that the Russian military instigated something in order to storm. I see. Okay. And oh, and another important detail is that when this happens in the standoff between September 1st and September 3rd, the official number that was said of hostages, the official number that people were told was 354 total, whereas it was actually like a thousand. Okay. And then what, what is the response? So in this case, the response in terms of like motherhood is much more clear because directly in response to this, a group of women, a group of moms whose children were killed in this storming form a like official organization called the Mothers of Beslan. In general, the goal of the Mothers of Beslan is to assist the victims of terrorist acts. It's like not only about Beslan, but their goal in terms of this tragedy is they demand a full investigation because they blame again the federal government for the deaths of their children i thought they had like annual protests and stuff yeah so they as a group like participate in various protests they actually have a really it's a really crazy story i don't know if we want to get into it they like split at some point and like they were also like a year later putin invited them to meet with him i don't know if you know that no are you gonna explain yeah, basically, so September 2nd, a year later, 2005, Putin heard of this organization, the Mothers of Islam, and he invites them to come meet with him in the Kremlin and, like, air their grievances. There's been an ongoing tri- trial. Specifically, the trial involves the r- one remaining surviving hostage taker. A lot of the issues that the Mothers of Islam focus on aren't being covered in the trial. So Putin says, like, okay, you can come meet with me in the Kremlin. The first thing about that is that they, a lot of the women, a lot of the moms say, like, that's, like, he should come to us. And what happens is, like, they go meet with Putin around, a, sit around a big table with him. And he, he bas- and they basically, like, say what they want to say. And he basically repeats the company line. Yeah, like, I mean, it's horrible. I know that some of them said afterwards, like, you can just, like, see, though, that this person... I think it's it's good to, like, see the actual person. But they definitely didn't feel, like, comforted. The original mother committee leader is, like, still the leader. And they've sort of expanded their um, their actions now. And, like, they focus on all terrorists, like, acts and... Um, victims and and like helping victims of terrorism and they have like in Beslan they've developed like a whole rehabilitation center for the kids who survived okay so we're two-thirds of the way through the tragedies and I'll just really quickly run through the last one this is like it's less of a discrete event like the submarine or the school and more of an ongoing thing though I think it reached its peak in 2014 and 2015 or or just the media has been less interested in reporting on it but you'll remember from our Crimea episode we talked about how there were like unmarked soldiers in Crimea that were kind of obviously Russian but Putin denied that there were Russian soldiers in Crimea and similarly there are Russian soldiers fighting on behalf of the separatist rebels in Ukraine and in this period of time that we're talking about 2014-2015 they were like unofficially there and so they were often deemed as russian volunteers which is like 
in the face of facts is pretty absurd because they have like tanks and shit and you don't just like give volunteer militias tanks. And so this thing around like denying that Russian soldiers were in Ukraine or are in Ukraine is to like also make it very, their deployment very secretive and often forced and often kept from their families. So Russian soldiers and like the Russian military, I think as far as I can tell is like sort of in a state of decline and one of the ways that this manifests is people not following orders as readily as you might expect like a military man to. So there's been a lot of pushback from like individual soldiers who they try to deploy to Ukraine. I read like one anecdote where they said like, oh, any volunteers will like double your salary. And when nobody came forward, they just said like, OK, you have to go anyway or them saying okay we're deploying you to Ukraine and soldiers just being like no we're not going and so one example was that at a military base where the soldiers were supposed to be deployed to Ukraine families came every day and protested um, and specifically oftentimes mothers and wives but the main thing that comes out of this Ukrainian conflict is that there were these secret funerals held for Russian soldiers that were killed in combat and the mothers a wouldn't even know that their sons had been in ukraine and then they might get like a coffin back home a few weeks later with their remains in it and there'd be no information explaining how they had died where they had died when they ship russian soldiers to ukraine they take their dog tags so they become unidentifiable and so there's been a lot of movements there's also a lot of just Russian soldiers missing because either they're in opposition prisons in Ukraine or they've been killed and not identified and so their families don't know. And so there's like kind of this legion of mothers, Russian mothers, and actually also Ukrainian mothers. That's one of the interesting things. There's been like kind of this crossover where you'll see Russian and Ukrainian mothers together sort of trying to solve the same problem, though they're on like opposite sides of the conflict. But this legion of mothers basically trying to track down their sons and in that process also trying to track down other mothers' sons. And one of the groups that AIDS in this is a group that's been around since Perestroika, since I think like I want to say 85, originally called the Committee of Soldiers Mothers. And this is a group of soldiers mothers that in the late 80s protested conscription of their sons who were still in school and through the years they've like been more and more organized and they've been as far as I can tell like a pretty strong force in improving military conditions improving health insurance improving the sort of things that you would get well, what is like benefits after you've done your military service and they're overall pretty anti-war so they were pretty vocal during the first Chechen war both for like the humanity of people fighting on the Chechen side but also obviously their sons who are Russian obviously this stuff is like ongoing because the Ukrainian crisis is still in existence and I'm Putin's still like kind of denying that there are Russian soldiers there right mm. I'm not sure. To me, the, the most obvious things that come out of these three different like events or ongoing things is that mothers get involved politically as mothers when they have a specific personal tragedy happen to them. 
And maybe that's the way that a lot of people become involved in politics, but it seems like when you're engaging as a mother, it's very not abstract. Like, for example, sorry, what's the name of the school again? I mean, it's in Beslan. So the the school in Beslan, like, that's a very, like, concrete event that happened. And like you said, like, they form an organization specifically around the event that happened in Beslan and only like later expand. And I think we see that with like the committee of soldiers, mothers, like they form around protesting their sons being forcibly conscripted or the mothers and wives of soldiers who died on the submarine. Like it's in response to a very specific event. Yeah, I'm not sure how that makes it particularly different from other forms of like political protest, only in that that tradition seems to exist elsewhere also, not necessarily like a Soviet or Russian thing. The one example that I'm thinking of is MAD, which was formed because the founder of its 13-year-old daughter was killed in a hit and run by a drunk driver. And then later they expand into, you know, like like liquor laws and those sorts of things. Like obviously personal tragedies are extremely motivating to people, like whether it's to donate to a certain type of organization, right, or to form one yourself. But these specific mother ones, like, I just liked the way the Bislan mothers explained it in an interview. They were like, well, we knew we had to do something. And we were like, well, what are we all, what brings us, like, what's the same about all of us? Like, oh, well, we're mothers. Like, you know, like, for them, it was like, also the naming was practical. It's like, well, we're all moms. So let's just call it the mothers of Bislan. (laughs) And like... (laughs) Though, though the other thing about the, the mother reaction, which I didn't, which we haven't talked about, is there's like, it's not just this like let's calmly form a committee and and like do all the horrible paperwork and go to all these court proceedings, which they did and they do, and they continue to do. But there's also this like you know like self-sacrificing in a literal sense. So the way the government handled the situation right after they stormed was they immediately started cleaning everything, which is not what you do to investigate. Like, huge, like, you know those sprayers that spray all the blood away and stuff? Like, they didn't investigate the situation. They just started cleaning it. That's one thing. And they also, like, met with some of these mothers and relatives and were like, we want to, you know, just to help this get this out of your mind because we know this is, like, a horrible tragedy. We just want to tear down the building. And one of the moms was like, First of all, one of them specifically was like, if you touch that building, I will literally stand in it and you will have to kill me. (laughs) So she said that. The other really intense thing that like comes with like a complete sense of like, you know, selflessness. Duty. Almost like self-sacrifice. Yeah, but in like a violent way. This is something that it's not talked about, but like Max told me about this and he said it's like common knowledge, at least like Max is from the southern Russia and he like was very close to this experience when it happened. Like, his family remembers this as being very... I mean, the whole country probably does, but they are particularly close to it. Common knowledge, anecdotal knowledge, that I couldn't confirm online, is that during the hostage situation between September 1st and 3rd, two hostages exited the building. One of them killed themselves in, like, a... by blowing himself up. And the other one, apparently, according to anecdotal evidence, was literally killed by mothers like ripped apart, like killed by their hands. Even if that's not true, the fact that that anecdote exists means something, even as folklore. Yeah, and in the interview I watched, one of them said like, after this happened, she specifically actually said, she was like, I just felt like I literally could do anything, like I could kill someone with my bare hands. And I was like, maybe you did. <laughs> did, did you? <laughs> you just don't remember it because you had one of those like fugue states yeah yeah Uh, god that's really intense but you know what i mean like 
adding to like this sort of like, oh, let's form a committee that's all like calm and official. There's also this other side of that. The wild mother, the rage mother. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, it's fair to make a distinction like, oh, Russian mothers have like a particular political engagement that you might not see in other places because we do see like mother-based movements in other places. But I do, I still, I know I kind of try to keep forcing this, but I still believe that there is some translation of the Soviet duty to be a mother thing and like function to the state translating to modern day Russia where mothers might feel some sort of like external duty not only to be like a mother and like raise your kid but also to engage politically on that basis. I mean it's an interesting theory but I feel like you could still argue that this like cult of the importance of motherhood and like this holy relationship between mother and child would also add yes like feeling i mean i'm not saying we're not saying that non-russian mothers wouldn't do the same thing in this situation like kill a terrorist with their bare hands (laughs) i believe in you you would too i i really liked how one of the committee members talked about like the men in the beslan community because she was just like oh yeah we would have never let the men handle this (laughs) yeah like they would they wouldn't know what to do with it like they don't have the passion or something to do it properly yeah, or, like, well, she was actually saying, like, they would just, like, try to, like, may- maybe, like, buy them off. Or she said something about, like, guns and drugs or just, like, some kind of other means of handling situations, like, either by violence or by substance or whatever. And she was like, no, we're just, like, we obviously need to handle this because we will handle it the right way. Yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, presumably, even even if you're Lena, who, like, doesn't buy into the image of, like, the mother heroine or whatever, like, seemingly you would have to had internalized, like, some of that propaganda in a way that would manifest in how you parent. I mean, just as a side note, Max, when I told him about this idea of the topic, completely agreed and was like oh yeah there's like a specific intensity where like and then like told a story of like one time where his mom like he's like she entered into a state she saw like our like basically his family friend being like beat up and she just like went into the crowd of people and took him out with her hands yeah <laughs> like that like i just like that he had an anecdote ready for me and was like yeah that's yeah. the thing and i was like okay cool especially especially when it comes to like soldier sons or something there too because like this whole idea that like mothers are holy because they produce sons who can like fight for the motherland then that means you have to protect the sons yeah and that that you specifically would be the ones to as you said to like go through official channels also so not just like to mourn you know because like women mourning is like an ancient image but like this is different this is like a very specific political actions that yeah. are taken and um, I, in high politics in high politics i also that have actual like influence i think that oftentimes mothers are viewed as apolitical this might not translate well to russia but just like the whole like soccer mom thing like you just like think of moms as sort of like oh my mom this capacity to organize around like a specific personal emotional trauma driven by the fact that you are a mom that you had a kid that something bad happened to and that you could have actual real political implications seeing mothers organize and be like kind of radical is like not as common of an image as seeing like young men in the streets or or in some countries young men and young women in the street being revolutionary like that's not how this is conceptualized like the mothers aren't viewed as like revolutionary but like they are organizing a way that causes certain political things to change 
maybe even more effectively than you would see like a bunch of young kids with signs. Yeah, like at one point when they were protesting, the president of North Ossetia, I want to say, said there must be someone behind them. Like he was like, they're too powerful. How are they this powerful? Like it must be, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like some, some man must be basically doing something. And they were like, what? No. It's like we're powerful because you've been saying for the past hundred years that like motherhood is saintly. Yeah, thanks. It doesn't feel particularly idealistic in the same way that like youth political engagement feels idealistic. It feels more practical. That's sort of what you said in the beginning, right? Yeah, it's practical. And like in some ways it is like mournful because it's focusing in on on the death of your child. Yeah, and you have to like, I mean, it's it's also just like, a particular way of like reacting to trauma not necessarily dealing with it it's not like they're like everything's fine now that we have this committee I feel so good but it's like every I mean these people talk about like I think people who experience this kind of trauma it's not particular to any country or something I mean they talk about how it's like present it's like it's yesterday it's like I'm just doing this because there isn't any other thing I can do you know what I mean like I have to do this that's what I feel like sets it apart in terms of political activity or like political statements or actions you can take because it's it comes from like such an intense sense of necessity, not duty necessarily, because duty sounds external, but like necessity to a point where it's like, it's not like, oh, I want to go to this protest, you know? It's like, I have to do something. Yeah. I got faith to all right that's the episode thanks for listening be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at cheese in russia subscribe to us on itunes overcast stitcher google play we're on all the platforms sign up for our newsletter at she's in and if you have any questions about lily's daily life in russia or any political questions you have or just a small question about the russian language give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 347-292-7126 and we will see you next week goodbye hello darkness my old dropbox I come to drop my box again. And I drop my box every day. If you work for Dropbox, can you ask them why they suck? Yeah, I don't I think that their deal is like they store a lot, but their their UI is very confusing. V not intuitive. I still don't know how to change the name of a document.